Hello and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Assistant Professor Ellie Heckscher from the Biological Sciences Division. Her research focuses on the assembly and function of sensory motor circuits and how neural circuits implement the motor programs that allow animals to move. Professor Heckscher is here to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Ellie Heckscher. It is a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. So Ellie, let's start out with an overview of your career path. Can you walk me through what happened between your undergraduate years all the way to your current role at the University of Chicago? Yeah, sure. So let's see. I started college. I am finished college at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And I I entered college very broadly interested in biology. And I was really interested more in questions of evolution and ecology than anything else. And I remember my junior year, I did a summer program where I got to do research full-time at the Marine Biological Laboratory in the lab of a guy named Ivan Valiella. And we got to do field work. And it was amazing in terms of just like getting to be outdoors and collecting specimens. But it turns out that intellectually, I found it incredibly dissatisfying because the experimental power that you have in ecological settings, at least at the time, really relied on things like statistics and indirect measures in a way that was hard for me to wrap my brain around. And so I I sort of ended up at the end of my junior year thinking I was going to go to grad school for evolution or ecology and then realizing that was not it. And so at that point, I you know, I had been a very good student and I had been paying my way through college by being an IT specialist. And I was trying to figure out like, okay, what is like computer troubleshooting, but also biology? And I decided it was medical school. And so I got back to, to campus senior year. I decided to start applying to medical school, but it takes a while to do that. And in the meantime, I took a developmental biology class and I fell in love with it. And so I asked one of the professors if I could work for him. And he, he said yes, which I, I don't know why he said yes. I was, he was my favorite. And so I spent the next summer working in his lab, looking at chick, embryonic chick, and looking at how the heart was specified. And I still, I, that was, I think, when I, I fell in love with sort of the broad discipline that I work in now, which is developmental biology. And I like I close my eyes and I can still see like a, a dish full of cells just starting to spontaneously beat. And it's like there's it's so beautiful and moving. And at that time, we started, you know, looking at gene expression and doing things really in a controlled wet lab setting. And it was this total eye opening thing for me that like I could know everything that I did to this piece of tissue. I was like, to me, that was really intellectually exciting. So I graduated from Brown and I, you know, because it takes so long to apply to medical school, I needed a job and I randomly applied to a bunch of jobs. And one of them that hired me was a zebrafish lab in New York City at an institute that no longer exists, but at the time was called Skirball Institute. And I was hired by a really young faculty member named Alex Shear, who now is like a, a very famous zebrafish biologist. And... I started doing embryology in zebrafish and sort of expanding the toolkit that I had started to acquire at the end of college. 
And I remember that there was a seminar series, a weekly seminar series, and I couldn't wait to go because I just like wanted to learn everything I possibly could about cellular and molecular biology because I had very little training in it. And I, I still remember this one day, part of the experiments I was doing in the lab were to do lineage tracing, which means, you know, what we were doing is we were trying to label a single cell and then wait some time and look to see what parts of the animal it populated. And I worked on this, this really fancy microscope that was in this giant closet. I, I always felt like it was like I was driving an airplane or something. There's so many switches to turn on and like were and it was like this otherworldly thing to get this ring working. And I remember one day my my boss at the time came in to the this room and he never came into that room. And he was very angry with me because he had found out that I was planning to go to medical school. And he said to me, I've never met anyone who loves biology like you. Why on earth would you go to medical school? And so he talked me into applying to graduate and so I, you know, he and many other people actually who, who I still know and who, who all worked at the Scarborough at the time really were very influential in at least having me take a look at graduate school. And it, you know, he was right. <laughs> I applied to graduate school and I, I fell in love. And so after taking a couple years off and tinkering in, in the lab, waiting to get into medical school, I did get into medical school, but at that point it was clear to me that wasn't where my heart was. So I went, I went to graduate school. And in graduate school, I, I ended up working in a lab that worked with Drosophila, still in developmental biology, but the Drosophila nervous system in a lab of a guy named Greg Davis. And the thing that was really so fabulous and eye-opening to me at that point was that in the Drosophila system, you could go and stay in all of these levels of biology in a way that I didn't know you could do. So you could look at the molecules and then see how the molecules affected the cells and then look to see how the cells affected the function of the animal. And the fact that like you could make really explicitly these connections in a really rigorous way was amazing to me. I, I just really fell in love with the idea that you can integrate all of this information in a really, really rigorous way. So that that experience sort of solidified my love of the nervous system and of using Drosophila. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do after graduation. And so I took a year off and I taught in a small liberal arts college in central Pennsylvania at a place called Dickinson College. And I did that because I went to grad school at UCSF where there was there was very, very little teaching. And I didn't, I thought maybe teaching was something that I would want to do full time. And so the job I took was as a sabbatical replacement. So the idea is that a full-time professor went on sabbatical and they needed somebody to teach the classes of this professor. And so I, they hired people like me who were almost graduated doctoral students or doctorals, you know, somebody who just graduated to teach the classes. So I was there for a year and it was amazing. I really, really loved interacting with the students. But even more than that, I really realized how much I missed the bench and how much I missed data. So I went, I went back and I decided I was going to do a postdoc. And I, when I was trying to think about what types of things I wouldn't wanted to do for my postdoc, I, I thought maybe e evolution, maybe at this point I wanted to study evolution. And I started interviewing in labs that did evolution. And I realized that the same, the same problems that I had had at the beginning of just like not feeling like I could do the experiments I really wanted were still there. 
So I went to a lab at University of Oregon run by a guy named Christo. And there I started to really use the power of Drosophila to the idea that you could integrate across all these different scales. But we started looking at, at how animals move. And so before we had sort of been able to go from molecule to cell to what those cells are doing for the animal physiology. But here the idea was to go even further and start to understand how the cells form networks that we call circuits and how those circuits drive animal behavior. So that's that's what I did in the Doe Lab. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time. We just got very lucky that a bunch of new tools were coming online so we could make all sorts of new discoveries that had never been seen before. And and because I got so lucky there, it set me up for having, you know, just a whole bunch of questions that I feel like I could sort of uniquely ask of the field. So I went on the job market and I fell in love with my department at University of Chicago. So so I'm here now. And since since that time, we've been studying the biology of neural circuits from many, many different aspects. So so now I have a lab of about six people and we're basically trying to understand, you know, how it is that circuits are developing, how they're functioning, and we're really getting into thinking about how they change over evolutionary timescales. <laughs> so back to my my original love. So Ellie, it sounds like you went through a long process of discovery and figuring out what you wanted to do for your career, um, what did you think you were going to be when you were a kid? Yeah, you know, I don't have a, a good answer to that. I have met many people who really had some preconceived notion about it, and I don't think I I did. So, like, my I have kids, and and they oftentimes get asked these questions, and I think they feel some pressure to know what they wanted, what what they're supposed to do, and. I don't know. I was the child of two elementary school teachers. And I think that that was just not a thing. It just, I didn't, I didn't have a preconceived notion of what I would do. So I feel lucky in that way, actually, that I, there, there was, there was no practical constraint placed on me by myself or, or other people around me. Well, when you look back on your time in, in high school and even when you were younger, is there anything, you know, that happened then or about, who you were, like what you were like, that you can say today, oh, it makes sense that I ended up where I ended up. Well, you know, so here I think is a is a sort of funny story that, or like vignette or something that I think may explain part of it. I'm a woman in science and there aren't tons of us, but I did go to an all-girls school. And I remember when I got to college, that was the first time I realized that like, boys were smart in any way, shape, or form. Like they just had existed in my world as social objects and nothing else. And so I think I was sort of unencumbered by any type of like, I mean, not social, there was tons of social dynamics, but but not gender specific social dynamics. So I was I was free to sort of be whoever I was in that way. So I oftentimes wonder, so when I was in grad school, I volunteered, for example, for a middle school girl science club, because you hear that, you know, girls very often are good at math and science, and then they vastly drop off in middle school. And there's some ideas that has something to do with social pressure or peer pressure. 
So, so maybe the fact that I went to an all girls school saved me from, from something like that. I, I have no, I, I have no real idea, but that's something. So for everyone, I think anyone that I've ever talked to that has done a PhD, they've talked about how challenging that is. And I know that pursuing a career in academia is certainly not the easiest career path to choose. Right. So who supported you? Like who were your cheerleaders along the way? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I mean, so I think I did tell you the story of my my mentor Alex Shear in the in the early years. So he I was working in his lab as a technician and he was he was really instrumental in making sure that I got to graduate school. So that was, he was, he was huge, I think, in terms of, you know, you get to these places where you make monumental decisions in your life. And he really helped me through that particular one. And in graduate school, graduate school had some real highs and real lows for me. And I think that there were many different people along the way who sort of helped support me in many different ways. Too many and in too many small ways to sort of mention them by name. Another thing that I started doing in graduate school was running a lot. And that was a super, super help for me. So anybody who would run with me would then have to hear whatever my anxieties were going through graduate school. And then towards the end, I met a man who'd become my husband. And he obviously is very supportive and wonderful. And then I would say once I got to my postdoc lab, my postdoc mentor, Christo, was sort of famous for being an excellent mentor. And that's no exception for me. And he's continued to be very supportive. And then I guess the final thing I would say is that at University of Chicago, my, my department is molecular genetics and cell biology. And I have found this department to just be very wonderful and supportive without being in your face and hands-on. So whenever I need something they're there. And most of the time they just leave me alone. And that's been really, really, really great. So I think the answer is that there have been many, many people along the way and they've shared the burden. And I hope I can help other people in that same way, just a little bit at different times. And so why become a professor? Like, why is that the path that you chose versus a different option? That is a good question. <laughs> you told me you would ask it. And so I should have a better answer for it. I think that the answer is that I am a very curious person and I love learning and I love new things and I love data. And so being a professor, you know, my, my primary job is to learn new things about the world that we never knew before and to help other people do that. I don't know if there's a lot of other jobs like that, but I mean, if you're going to pay me even a little bit to like discover totally undiscovered things, I'm, I want to do that. That sounds like, how could you not want to do that? And then what would you say is the most fun part of being a professor? Well, it's interesting. So I think that I learned a lot about the answer to that question, having gone through COVID-19, where a lot of things got taken away from us. And so I would say that, you know, hands down, the two best things about being a professor are colleagues. And whether that be, you know, people, other faculty members in my department, 
graduate students and postdocs that are in my lab or other labs, but also getting to talk to the wider scientific community. So other professors and people in different institutions, that is, is a huge source of joy for me because it inspires me to sort of think about things in different and new ways. And then I think the other thing that I find really inspiring is data. Just being able to see a new piece of information that nobody else has ever seen before. We didn't have that much of it during the pandemic because we couldn't do experiments. And I didn't, I didn't realize that I, I think it's predictable that I would have missed the people. I didn't know that it would be as predictable that I missed seeing new information, but like new, just really raw pieces of data is another one of the great parts about being a professor. And because you're working with many, at least for me, I have many different experimentalists in my lab, like the rate of which you get to see new information is greater than when you're the sole experimentalist on the project. So, you know, if you're a person like me, who's sort of addicted to data, you can get your hits more frequently, more often if, if you have a whole lab full of people doing experiments. The downside is you don't get to do them yourself. Upside is lots of data to look at. And and Ellie, I'm curious about your own future and, and what goals you have for yourself and your research and your teaching. Yeah, so that's a great question. And I guess it sort of riffs off, <clears throat> excuse me, of what I just said, which is I think that sort of there's this long-term thing and then there's the short-term thing. And so, you know, I think the short-term things that are really in in my control are to sort of be the best mentor to the students and postdocs in my lab that I can and to really try to push to get to be a better and better sort of teacher and mentor for undergraduates. And I think those are things that always can improve and, and always need work. So I think I have great ambitions to try to really push to help the next generation as much as I can. I know that sounds sort of smushy and cheesy, but I think that's actually really in my control and now a big part of my responsibility. And so intellectually, I think sort of this gets back to the, the big thing that we talked about at the beginning, which was sort of my trajectory. And I've sort of always had this lingering love of evolution. And so, you know, I think we're going to start trying to steer our experiments. I think we have some good handles on development and function in the one organism that we've been studying, which is Drosophila melanogaster larvae. And so we've already started trying to expand out to start thinking about how these same principles and questions apply in different closely related organisms with an eye towards trying to understand the evolution of motor systems and behavior. At the end of my career, I think if we can look back and say, we understand something about how circuits self-assemble and how this changes over evolutionary timescales. I would be pretty happy with that as a contribution. And finally, Ellie, what would you say is the most fulfilling part of the work that you do? Yeah, so I think actually this is something that I that I learned when I was when I was teaching at the Small Liberal Arts College, which is if it's really the interactions with the students, you know, and. I'm lucky that in my job, there's lots of different types of interactions with students. The undergraduates that work in lab or that I teach in formal coursework, that's always very, very fulfilling. But 
But even even more so, potentially getting to develop really deep mentorship relationships with people in my lab last for years and beyond. That's there's nothing that beats that. And I think as sort of a, a, a teaching mentor kind of person, you get to know somebody's part of somebody, their brain, their intellectual part. And as an experimentalist, their hands in this way that's really intimate and personal. And I think it, you you have the potential to really help people sort of be their best selves. And that that is, there's nothing more fulfilling than that, to feel like you kind of, you help somebody else. Thank you, Professor Ellie Heckscher, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more and thanks for listening.